Trust that you've got a, uh, uh, a study guide. Doesn't matter whether you're in a, a growth group or not. It's a great opportunity to be able to reflect on uh, the, the sermon this morning and uh, what it is that God may be teaching us. Uh, because I'm sure as you come to church, you don't just want it to be just a bit of information that you can just you know, put away in your pocket. You want to be transformed, don't you? Don't you want to be you know, different people? You want to be growing. You want to be uh, sensing a, a closer walk with, with Jesus. And, and we trust that as we spend time in his word and, and we know that God's spirit is here and dwelling within all of his believers, that uh, today is a, is a supernatural event. It's, it, as it is uh, all the times we gather together, God doing some amazing things uh, amongst us. So um, if you haven't been with us for a little while here, we're, we're in a, a relatively new sermon series, although we're up to week three, which is nearly halfway. So is that hmm, um, week three? And uh, we're looking at the story of, of David. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, looking at events leading up to David. And as a matter of fact, even though the sermon series is about David, the first week was about a woman called Hannah. And Hannah was a, a barren woman who um, desperately cried out to God, committed any um, future child to the Lord, and uh, God gave Hannah a son, and she called him Samuel. Okay, so how does Samuel fit into the picture? Well, last week, um, Steve brought us a, the, the message about Samuel, a young boy um, who heard from God. And it was a remarkable thing, such that he thought that he was—he he heard the the, uh, the 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 priest Eli, but God was speaking to Samuel and preparing him as a, as a prophet and priest for the for the people of Israel. And so, what we have today, week three, we actually we actually have Daniel, uh, sorry, David, now coming into the picture, and Samuel as a key part of all of that. And so. To give you a little bit of a, a, a backstory, this, this, this passage we're looking at today, 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13. Now, the, 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 the people of Israel had for a long time wanted a, a king. At that, that point, they had been ruled by judges and all the other lands round about them had been ruled by kings and they kept asking God, we want a king, we want a king and God says, well, you're not ready for a king and the time's not right and you'll probably, you'll probably all go bad on you but they said, no, we still want a king, we still want a king, we still got a king and it's almost like God said, okay, you want a king, I'll give you a king. And so Samuel, Samuel, who is a key part of this message today, was a person who anointed a king called Saul. And Saul was the, the model king. He was tall, we can only imagine, tall, well-built, handsome, imposing, smart. The, 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 the key and, and I guess the model type of king. This didn't go well for them. Didn't go well for Israel because, because Saul became quite jealous and insecure. And uh, we found that the anointing left Saul. And so we come into this particular passage. And so we're going to read this passage, and I'm going to ask uh, Crystal uh, to come, and she's going to read us the, uh, the passage from today. Thank you, Crystal. Um, and so if you've got your Bibles with you, we're not going to put the whole passage up on the screen. Um, so we we'll encourage you to either on your, 
tablet, phone or Bible, read this particular passage uh, and it's verses 1 through to 13. Thank you, Crystal. Samuel anoints David. Chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him and they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, the Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abner-Yadab and passed in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel had said to him, The Lord does not, has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and had some features. The, then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Thank you, Crystal. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this, this passage, your word. And we pray that you would speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you are doing, what is it that you are saying. And we wait in expectation as we reflect on this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I don't know, here's a little bit of um, information for you. This passage along with um, up to the point where David actually becomes king. So from the start of, of 1 Samuel 16, right through to David becomes king, is the longest continuous passage in the Bible. And it was written as one continuous passage. This, all of the events that lead up to, from the anointing, the actually finding David, Samuel finding David, all the way through to David becoming king. One continuous passage over a number of chapters that you read in, in your Bible. 
Now, bearing in mind, and we, we see this at the very start of the passage, Saul is still the king. He's troubled, he's insecure, he's, he's jealous, he knows his time is up, but he still has the reins. So this is all happening during Saul's reign. You could just imagine the, the, the difficulty at that stage. I think this, this passage, and I'm going, to, I'm going to focus on three particular details of this story, and so I think it reminds us of three things that I'm going to go through one by one. And the first one is this. When we look at people, we tend to focus on unimportant things. When we look at people, we tend to focus on unimportant things. Now, have a look at verse 6. Now, remember Samuel. Last week we heard Samuel heard from God as if an audible voice, didn't we? Samuel is a godly man, okay? Put that into context. And in verse 6, when they all arrived, Samuel saw Elab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel, this, this godly man of God, looks at the first son and he sees someone who he thinks humanly would make a good king. And as a matter of fact, we notice in verse 7, we'll touch on it later, God said, don't worry about his, his height or appearance. So in other words, it is obvious that Samuel was distracted by the height appearance of the first son. Can you see that? So even this, this godly man, Samuel, got distracted. Obviously, uh, a, a model person. Samuel is impressed by his, uh, his stature. And in, and in those days, height was really important. Height um, was, was crucial. And particularly, if you're going to have a king who's going to lead troops, you would think that the leader of the troops, the taller, the better, you would think. Does anyone remember that, that movie Braveheart? You know, Mel Gibson, Braveheart, blue face, kilt, and, and all of that. Um, apparently, William Wallace, the, the man that, that Mel Gibson played, the, the leader, he apparently was six foot six. And he had a sword that was actually five foot six. He had this incredible sword, incredible stature was William Wallace. Now, apparently, Mel Gibson, who played William Wallace, was only about five foot six about the height of the sword that William Wallace would have carried. And apparently in the making of this movie, they actually had to use some camera trickery, you know, to, to make Mel Gibson look imposing because apparently Mel Gibson is a pretty average height guy. Um, and so you can see that through all of that, it was important that the leader of the troops was imposing and um, large. Now... Samuel, Samuel should have learnt this from Saul. Samuel anointed Saul. And you'd think Samuel would have gone back and go, hang on. Now, what did we learn when I anointed Saul? What was the mistake? I'm, oh, that's right. We saw Saul and saw him as being this large, imposing, handsome man. And we got distracted by that. And how did that work out for us? Not very well. So, to a certain extent, we can see that Samuel really hasn't learned his lesson, has he? The same, he gets distracted by the same things and he's tricked again. Now, there's a concept, there's a concept called misdirection. You've heard about misdirection? 
It's used in a whole lot of different things. Magicians use it. They go, here, pick a card. Meanwhile, they're doing something with their other hand and you're distracted by pick this card and meanwhile, they're doing whatever. Misdirection is one of these things where it causes you to focus on this. Meanwhile, the more important thing is that. Pickpockets do that, don't they? They create a, a distraction over here. Meanwhile, they do their work over there. It's done in, in life. It's done in sport. Now, apparently... In rugby league, if anybody's interested in rugby league, there's, <laughs> there's a thing called a, a dummy, apparently. Now, that's not a person, a dummy. It's apparently, I'm going to do my best rugby league impression here. They've got the ball, and they're going to pretend to go over here. So they do this step, but then they go over here. Meanwhile, the opponent is thinking they're going to go there, but meanwhile, they go there. That was a good rugby league impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest one, if they get stuck, they're, they're the dummy. Well, hang on, I'll give you an example. I'm not, I'm not much into rugby league, tennis. Tennis, I don't call it dummy in tennis, but a good, really good tennis player, as they come to the net to volley, right, and they'll size themselves up as if they're going to volley and hit the ball over into that court. So they'll size themselves up, ready to hit the ball over into that corner. So what does the opponent do? They're going, oh, I'll run over to that side of the court because they're ready to volley over here. Last minute, poop, over there. Misdirection, isn't it? Looking over here, meanwhile, it's happening over here. We focus on other things. That is what's happening to Samuel. He's misdirected. He's thinking that God's anointed is going to be in someone who's tall, handsome, strong, you know, have all the right features. He's been misdirected. Do we do that? Do we do that when we look at other people? We're impressed by people's looks or their, their beauty, their money, their power, their talent. And, and, and we can be misdirected. And so often we can miss other qualities in people, can't we? We all do it, and I don't think it matters whether we're followers of Jesus or not followers of Jesus. We can get misdirected and we focus on things about people that really aren't important. Would you agree? Hmm. When we look at people, we tend to focus on unimportant things. Which brings me to my second point, which is really the flip side of that. And that is this, when when God looks at people, he always focuses on what is most important. What is most important? God's never misdirected. Samuel is impressed by the first son. But what does, what does um, God say to Samuel in verse 7? He says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart that's that's a powerful verse isn't it we tend to look at people's outward appearance we think that the most important thing about us is our outward appearance and we can spend a lot of time on our outward appearance and i'm not sort of saying that it's it's not in, it's not valuable to to work on your outward appearance but more important than our outward appearance is our heart. And when I'm talking about a heart, I'm not talking about that vessel that pumps blood around our body. I'm talking about our character. 
What was God looking for? Someone with a heart for God. As a matter of fact, this is what we've called the, the sermon series, which was a reference to David. David, a man after God's own, own heart. Meanwhile, in this scene, as Samuel comes to the home, and one by one, uh, he, he looks at and it would have been, think about it, it would have been almost comical as they're lining up the sons and Samuel's walking along going, hmm, hmm, yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, walking along, almost comical. Where's David? He, he's not even there. See that? He's, he's, he's not even considered part of this whole process. He's virtually an afterthought. Now, in this reading here, it says that David is the youngest. He's the youngest. In, in Hebrew terminology, you could virtually use the term inconsequential. The youngest basically meant you were of no consequence. They never get considered. Now, you can imagine Samuel is, is highly invested in this process. He's considering who is the next king. And you can imagine, he goes, I'm not going to make the same mistake next time. I want to make absolutely sure that we, we pick the one that God has set aside. And he gets to the end of the row and he's going, what is going on here? I came here to anoint the future king. So I would imagine Samuel's a bit ticked off here. And so to the point we read here, he sort of says, if there's another son, go and get him. And I'm not going to sit down until... They, you bring him back. So, you know, there's a, there's a bit of aggro here. I'm, I'm going to stay standing and I'm going to wait until you bring him back. Now, I think it's easy to beat up on Jesse, the father, the, the, the father of all of these sons. You go, what? You've forgotten your own son. Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. Don't you know how many sons you've got? But think about it. The culture of that, this is the culture of that day that the oldest son got everything and it just worked its way down to the last son basically being inconsequential. Now, we know, we know it's not like that today. Well, it shouldn't be like that today, don't we? we? We know that we should treat all of our children equally. And so we don't tend to, we sort of look at that and we go, that doesn't make sense. No family in our society would treat the same way like that would they or maybe now it was only a uh, it was only a few weeks ago we had a fairly large ceremony well, it wasn't here in australia it was actually in england wasn't it the coronation of king charles the third it's a it's a really interesting little process that goes through about who's going to become the monarch of the british empire now, what I'm going to throw up here is I'm going to throw up the, the next in line for the British throne. So when it was Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth passed away. Now it's King Charles III. Here is the line of succession to the British throne. Now, if you Google this, you get about a thousand names. They actually, they actually get about a thousand names in succession. Like imagine if you're thousandth. I mean, at least you got on the list. Now, I want to tell you right now, it wasn't that long ago. See right down the bottom, Prince Edward, Duke of Edinburgh. I, I kind of got an a, a affinity for Prince Edward because he's my age. He's about 40 um, <laughs> or something. 
Um, and it wasn't that long ago, Prince Ed was about fourth or fifth in line for the throne, you know, as the, the sons and children. He's now been bumped down to 13th. Now, I'm just going to quickly go through it, as, as you would know. So next in line to the British throne is, is Prince William, Prince of Wales. Everybody loves Prince William. You know what I mean? Because he's, he's tall, he's, he's handsome, he's, he's the model king. He's like a, he's like a Saul. Now, I don't want to put the diss on, on Prince William, but, you know, we love him. And then, of course, after that, you've got his children. So Prince George, Princess Charlotte, and Prince Louis, they're all next in line because they're the children of Prince William, okay? Now, let's keep going down. Oh, we've got Prince Harry. Hmm... He's kind of a little bit out of sorts at the moment, isn't he? But he's still there at number five. Then we've got Harry's children, Archie and Lilibeth, okay? So they're next in line after that. What's next? Oh, Andrew. Still sitting in at number eight. And then what happens is we go through the children of Prince Andrew. So then it's Princess Patrice and her children, Sienna, Princess Eugene, and then August Philip, the son of Eugene, all the way down to Prince Philip at number 13. It's just like the, the sons of Jesse, isn't it? Who's next in line. And it got me thinking, can we go to the next slide? Here is a photo of the coronation. Front row seats of the coronation in which Charles became King of England. Front row, William. George is there, but he's part of the party. Then, then you've got uh, Charlotte, then you've got Louis, then you've got Kate. Who's sitting next to Kate? Prince Edward, front row seat at the coronation. Everyone else has got themselves into trouble and as quiet as a mouse. Because most of the time, you know, Prince Edward is out the back of Windsor Castle tending sheep. You know that? They don't even know that Prince Edward exists. He's out there doing what the youngest son would do. All of a sudden, he gets there in the front seat of the coronation. Now, what sort of a point am I making in all of this? Well, probably not much. All to say is that this still happens... And sometimes some strange thing happens when people get elevated into positions that they previously weren't before. And if that is what happens in the system of the monarchy of the British Empire, what does it mean for God's kingdom? And this is the point that I, I really want to make. This story in the Bible, like Edward, imagine what it would take for Edward to become a king. It would take an enormous amount. We've got 12 people before him. God's got different plans. And God works to a different set of values. So let me ask this question. In the family dynamics, for you yourself personally, who is the eldest son? One, two, two two, three, three, um, four, you're 3,000 years too late. Who's, who's the youngest son in the family? Oh, look at them. You know what? God hasn't forgotten you, okay? It's, it's okay. 
this passage here should encourage us that even though the eldest got it all in the Bible, I'm fascinated by the economy of God. This is the culture, this is the culture that was prevalent there at that time. The eldest gets everything, the youngest is completely forgotten. And yet, there are a number of stories. God used Abel, not Cain, the younger rather than the older. God used Isaac, not Ishmael, the younger, not the older. God used Moses, not Aaron, the, the younger, not the older. God uses all sorts of forgotten people. Only two weeks ago, we read a story about Hannah, a barren woman who God used to, to, to bring Samuel into the world, who was a key person in this whole process. God uses forgotten people. God uses people who are discarded, or as the Bible actually uses, inconsequential people. So, how does God view you? Do you see yourself as a forgotten person? But on the flip side, I'm an eldest son. And it's easy to trust in your position, either within the family, your position within society, your position within the community, position within the church. And it's easy to become a bit like, a bit like Saul, the, the model person, and you can trust in your own abilities, trust in your own status, the status that is given to you by others, instead of trusting in God. So there's difficulties also for the eldest or the, the most prominent people. I can easily trust my position rather than God. And this leads me to my, my third point. So the third point is this. So the first one was, we tend to focus on unimportant things. God always focuses on the things that are most important. But then again, point number three, the most important thing is usually the most challenging. The most important thing is usually the most challenging. What do you mean by that? When Samuel sees David... God speaks to Samuel and said, this is the one. And this passage says that David had a fine appearance. Now, we don't mean by a fine appearance. That doesn't mean fine, thank you very much. It means that he had a, a, a thin and, and, and not a muscular appearance. And see, once again, that's where it becomes misdirected. But in, to a large extent, it what makes it so amazing because in a couple of weeks, Paul's going to bring us a story about David and Goliath. And the thing that makes the story about David and the Goliath so amazing is that David is a scrawny kid. He's a scrawny kid. He's not the next model king in line for the throne. He's a scrawny kid, probably a 14-year-old who defeats a giant. Does that, who does that bring glory to when that happens? Brings it to God, doesn't it? So I think God actually enjoys doing this because it means that his his power and his glory is is magnified is it not if if Saul had the the we don't know how how big and imposing Saul was but if Saul had beaten Goliath we would have gone yeah yeah he's a good king but when David beats Goliath you go wow he must have had God's intervention gives glory to God usually the most important thing is usually the most challenging. We read in the latter part of this verse 12 and 13, the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, this is the one. 
David. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So on that day, even before he becomes king, David is anointed uh, and, and the Spirit of God is on David. Now, it was important to anoint in those days, set apart for service for kingship. Now, you would think, oh, once you're anointed, everything's going to be great, isn't it? David's going to have a great life because he's now anointed and so God's Spirit's on him and he's going to lead him to do all sorts of amazing things. And yet one of the the next things that happen is he's confronted by the giant. Then he's confronted by a jealous king and it goes on and on and on. David is, is, is running for his life from the time he's been anointed. Doesn't sound that great, does it? David is challenged over and over. I would imagine that there would have been times in David's life where he would have gone, it probably would have been easier if I had stayed out in the paddock and continued to tend the sheep rather than go in and meet Samuel. I'm sure that crossed his mind from time to time. You know what I'm saying? Think about this. What happens when we are anointed? What happened to Jesus? Straight after his, his baptism, he was basically anointed, ready for ministry. What happened to Jesus straight after his baptism? He goes in to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. What a great introduction to ministry. What about the, 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 the disciples straight after Pentecost? Essentially, they're anointing for ministry, yes. What happened straight after there? There was a great persecution. Many were, were, were sent out of the city and many were martyred. What a great introduction to ministry. When God's spirit moves, the challenges come. And we need to learn to trust. On the flip side, Saul was also anointed. But it appears that he didn't have the same level of trust. He trusted in his own abilities rather than trusting in God. A few years ago, I read a book called Finding God in Difficult Transitions by a man called Jeff Mannion. And this book is based on, essentially, on the 40 years in the wilderness of the Israelites. You know, they came out of Egypt, the land they were used to. They spent 40 years in this wilderness, in this no man's land, before they got to the promised land. You know what I mean? So they're in this land in between. And we look back on this this time of the land in between as foundational and transformational in the lives of those people. They learned to trust. They learned to find their identity in God. They, They knew what it was like to be God's people. A lot of their writings were written during that time. And in this book by Jeff Mannion, there's a particular quote where he says this, the land between is fertile soil for transformational growth but it is also the place where faith goes to die the land in between think about that for the israelites is fertile soil for transformational growth where we learn to trust where we learn to wait but is also the place where faith goes to die and you know for to a large extent this is the place that we're in We're not into the promised land, so to speak. We're in this place, to a certain extent, a wilderness, a place where we can find transformational growth, but it's also a place where we can go, what's the point? 
we can grow or we can die in the challenges in the wilderness. Some grow, some flounder. Some trust in God, some trust in self. And I think we find in this particular passage, in this story, the comparison between King David and King Saul. Are you in the land in between? Now, some of you go, well, what does that matter? Am am I really that important? I want to bring you a particular passage now in the New Testament to bring it into a bit of context. In 1 John 2 verse 20, we read this, John writes, but you, and he's, he's talking to the church here, so he's talking to anybody who's a follower of Jesus. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. You have an anointing, just like David had an anointing. And that anointing basically means to be set apart for service, to be set apart as, as, as part of your identity and as part of who you are, a child of God anointed for service. So we can, in that regard, we can relate a lot to the story of David. Do you feel forgotten? Are you in the wilderness? Do you feel like you're at the back of the queue? Or do you struggle to trust? Can I say that according to God, you're not forgotten? As a follower of Jesus, you are anointed. And he calls us to trust in him. Trust in him. Know that you are a special, a special part of his creation. Loves you more than you could ever comprehend. You might not consider yourself as important as other people, but neither did David. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3, 2 to 7, Paul writes this, he says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So you're not forgotten. God seeks to comfort us for those who are in Christ. And one of the fascinating things is over the next few weeks as we continue to delve into the story of David, we're going to see a, a man who's uh, got a heart after God but is wrestling with all sorts of opposition and difficulties. But it doesn't defeat him as he continues to place his trust in God. 
God develops and grows this man to be the person he's called him to be. And so today, what I want to do is I want to bring this, uh, I guess, this sermon, this message, this, this passage to a climax. That where this is epitomized is with what Christ has done. We're through this, a, uh, an opportunity to, to take a cup representing the, body, the blood of Christ and a, and a biscuit representing the body of Christ, is available to everybody. Imagine if it was like this. If I said, um, this feast, this opportunity, this invitation is only available to certain people. Some of you qualify and some of you don't qualify and maybe if you're the eldest son, welcome. Come on down. But if you're the youngest, you know, the inconsequential, um, sorry, because you're not important enough. Um, how would the leadership of the church feel if I conducted the communion service like that? sorry you do it once because it's not like that is it the kingdom of god is is not like that is it we read this is one passage out of thousands of passages where where god he continues to invest in the the youngest and the inconsequential and he says come come everybody is welcome Everybody has the same value in the kingdom of God. Isn't that, isn't that what he says? You don't have to be a certain height. You don't have to be a certain build. You don't have to be of a certain gender. You don't, it doesn't matter. If you love Jesus, you are welcome here today. And so let me try. I, I will never conduct a communion service like that where I only invite certain people because you're not forgotten. So you're all welcome. You love Jesus come and remind us again that it's not because of my abilities or, or your abilities or your talents or your stature or your build that enables you this it's because of what jesus did isn't it it's really got virtually nothing to do with our abilities it's our simple our trust in him and through whatever journey we're going through jesus walks with us all the time what a great comfort so if you're here today you're all welcome nobody's excluded come and join with us we encourage you to take a, a biscuit and a cup take it back to your seat and at appropriate time as you eat on your own we'll drink together but can I just pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your word and the message of your word which goes so counter to the message of the world. The message of the world which says that some people are more important than other people. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that your message is that you haven't forgotten us, 
And even though we may feel forgotten, even though we may feel like we're at the back of the queue, even though we, we, we feel that there are people who deserve more than we deserve, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need salvation. No, none of us can save ourselves or none of us can, can do it through our own works or abilities or talents. And so we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son, that he would die on the cross, his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for not just select people, but for all people. We thank you. We thank you. And as we live our lives in this land in between, we're not where we were and we're not home yet. Help us to trust in you, like David, that you will lead us, transform us, strengthen us day by day to be the people you've called us to be. So as we come and eat and drink in this feast this morning, remind us again, we're not forgotten. We trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.